Hey, uh, I'm doing great. Jesus is alive. Hey, Jesus is risen, right? As my uh, grandfather used to say uh, in his best Russian, Christos Vaskres. I know. We would shout back to him, Voistinu Vaskres, anyway. Um, this is the last day on, of Holy Week. This is Resurrection Sunday. This, guys, this is the Super Bowl of the Christian calendar. You guys with me? You understand what I'm talking about? This is it. This is the big day, all right? We join with hundreds of millions of fellow believers from different cultures all around the globe proclaiming the resurrection of Christ right now, today. In fact, I'm getting texts binging in ever since early this morning from people all over this country that have been texting me. It's a great thing. We're celebrating Christmas. is great, and that's nice. But today is what Christians are all about this day. The empty tomb, the, the cross, and the empty tomb, right? Historically, our faith rises and falls on this simple claim. Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. The resurrection is central to our beliefs. It is what makes the gospel good news, and it's what gives us real hope in days of darkness and death. This is why we get so stinking excited about today. So if you're a guest with us today, regardless of your religious beliefs or how you were raised, we are glad that you're here. We want to welcome you here today. Welcome to Crossway. And we also, more importantly, want to welcome you to Jesus Christ, because he is alive and he's right here. He is with us. So uh, we're going to read a short story about the resurrection in, uh, in John. John 20 is where we're going to be. John chapter 20. Verses 24 through 29. I'm going to read it for us. I'm going to pray. It should be up on the screen. And there it is. Okay. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, Jesus, King Jesus, we love you. And we are so thankful that you have physically, bodily, raised from the dead, appeared to many, that you have conquered death, you have beaten sin, 
And Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us right now through your word. I pray, God, that you would bring people to life today. They're dead to you. They would be brought to life to you, that you would restore us to you. You would restore us to one another, to our families. Lord, do a work today that only you can do. We've come to celebrate you, love you, and worship you. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. This passage uh, we just read ends with the words, Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Now, as believers today, that is you and I. And for those of you that one day you will believe, that's you too. It seems like a big ask, doesn't it? To believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. But that is the central message that the apostles took to an unbelieving world. They did not claim that Jesus rose as an invisible spirit. They did not claim that Jesus rose to life in their heart. It just felt strangely warm one day when they woke up. That's not what they claimed. They did not claim that Jesus' teachings became alive to them. Those claims would be very easy to say, very easy to spread, and very difficult to disprove. They proclaimed a far more difficult message that Jesus bodily rose from death. Very easy to disprove. All you need is his dead body, right? Game over. No Christianity. Yet this is the message they spread to the world. I find that fascinating, don't you? Why wouldn't they give themselves an easier message to spread? Why wouldn't they give themselves an out? Well, one explanation is it's because that's exactly what happened. And that's what we believe. The truth is that even for for some self-proclaimed Christians, our understanding of the resurrection of Jesus has been dramatically influenced by Greek philosophy, particularly Plato, instead of a Hebraic worldview. The Greeks believed that this physical world and the physical body was bad, or at least it wasn't real. You couldn't trust it. And therefore, it has no real value. So the body must be shed like a snakeskin. For them, salvation was the freeing of the spirit from the body and living in a disembodied state in bliss somewhere else. That's what they believed. So they taught that this physical world was an illusion. We need to evacuate it. They taught that the physical body was bad. And we need to evacuate it. This is very different than Hebraic worldview and thinking. The Hebraic worldview believed in resurrection, which means the bringing to life the body and restoring the whole person to God as he originally intended it. Think Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, okay? Real people in a real world in a relationship with the one that made them and loved them. I'll give two examples of this thinking about the resurrection from the scriptures. The first is Job 19, verses 25 through 27. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and on the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me, he says. Job is speaking about a fully future resurrection day at the end of history. 
Job understands the resurrection to mean a physical, bodily coming back to life. He says that decay will set into his flesh in the grave, but God will send his Redeemer to restore his body and to animate it with life on the last day so that with his own eyes he will see God. Job is physically suffering. And his hope of redemption is not that his spirit will escape his body to heaven. His hope is that his body will be physically resurrected and he will see his Redeemer in the very body that death tried to destroy. That is victory over death, guys. That is resurrection. Daniel 12, 2-3. Daniel says this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Again, Daniel's referring to a fully future resurrection day at the end of history. Again, resurrection in Hebraic thinking means to bodily come back to life. These are people. Daniel gives this vague description of what their bodies, of the, the bodies of the righteous will look like. He says they'll shine like stars. So their body will be raised, but in some way it's going to be a little different. He doesn't really fill in what that means. It leaves some gaps in the understanding that, of resurrection that Jesus will later fill in the upper room with the twelve and with Thomas that we just read. But here's the point. We've got to get a working definition of what we mean by resurrection. We have to know what we're celebrating before we can jump to what it means to us. Today we are not celebrating Jesus' spirit evacuating from the body like the Greeks believed. We are not celebrating a mere resuscitation of the body like Lazarus experienced. We are celebrating something absolutely different and far more wonderful. Resurrection is the complete restoration of the whole person, spirit and body, listen, from the power of death. And it matters. It matters. Because Christ's resurrection gives us reason to believe. Let's go back to the story of the upper room. John 20, verse 25. Check this out. So the other disciples told him, meaning Thomas, they told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Good old doubting Thomas. Thomas is a good Jew. He knows his scriptures. The scriptures I just read. He knows that the resurrection it only happens at the end of history. And he knows it doesn't happen in the middle of history. He also knows that to be resurrected means to be physically raised to life, not just a disembodied spirit. And Thomas wants evidence before he believes something as crazy as Jesus being resurrected a mere three days after he was crucified. He says, prove that to me, or I will never believe. So given the Jewishness of the first church, 
and the apostles who believe the resurrection came at the end of history. Listen to this. It makes more sense for them to build a shrine at the tomb of their leader who died and wait for the resurrection than it does for them to go around the world saying that he is alive right now. We have reason to believe, brothers and sisters. When you study how societies change their beliefs, it happens very gradually, and it happens over the course of years. The only reason, at least to me, the only reason that makes sense for a Jew like Thomas to change his deeply held religious beliefs in such a radically short amount of time is that he actually saw and he actually touched Jesus in his resurrected body. But here's what that means for you and me. Because Jesus is alive today, we can believe that he is a truth teller, not a liar. We can believe that he's far more than a prophet. He is Lord and God. Jesus is Jehovah. He is the Lord. We can believe that his teachings really are good for us and not harmful. We can believe everything he promised us will come true because he has physically risen from the dead. Amen? And what has he promised us? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> He's promised us hope for true peace. I don't even have time to talk about all these promises. us. I'm just going to pick a couple. He's promised us hope for true peace. Let's go back to the story one verse down. We're just going to go verse by verse. Eight days later, this is over a week later now, right? His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. See, there's something different about his body. It's the same but different. Stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Peace be with you, he says. That's the first words out of his mouth. It's, you see, it doesn't matter if Jesus died for our sins if he did not physically rise from the dead. That doesn't matter. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ is not physically risen from the dead, then you and I are still in our sins. We are still in our sins. Why? Because it means that God did not accept Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It means that Jesus was cursed by God, and he's still being cursed by God. And guess what? It means that you and I put our hope in Christ. We're still under the wrath of God. He didn't accept that sacrifice. But the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that you and I can have true peace with God. We can. There really actually is no more punishment from God that needs to fall on us. Because it all fell on Jesus. It proves that. There's not one single moral, good, righteous, religious deed that you or I need to do to make God pleased with us. The historical fact of the resurrection means that Jesus pleased God on our behalf. He actually did. Now we just get to enjoy God and love him with all of our heart instead of fear him and avoid him with all of our might. Because Jesus is alive, it means he really was the one who came to rescue us. He is the Messiah. 
It means that there is nothing that you must do. I'm talking to you. There's nothing you must do to atone for your sins. Yes, you. That's good news. That's the gospel. Listen, everyone deals with feelings of guilt. Believer, non-believer, it doesn't matter across the border, across the cultures. We all deal with feeling guilt, do we not? Amen. We all have a sense that we don't measure up some way, and we're going to be found out someday. We all have that deep within us. I'm going to be found out that I don't measure up. I am not the dad that I know I should be. One day my kids will find out. I am not the wife that I should be. I'm not that great at running the business. And one day my workers will find out. I'm not that great at leading my team. I'm not that great of a friend that people think I am. One day they'll find out. We all deal with this. I do. Every religion, every philosophy at their root says the way you make the guilt you feel go away is to be better and try harder. Be better at what you do. Here's some tips. Try harder. Here's an energy drink. Repeat. That's what it tells us to do. They say, here's a list of the things you can do, and if you can do them all the time without taking a day off, you will finally have peace. They say at the root, when you look better and you act better and you shape up and you talk better, then you'll, you'll feel better. That's religion. That's spirituality. That's personal philosophy. You see, as long as we keep that list, we will have peace for a time. It does work for a while. We do have peace. But when we fail, when we have a bad day, when we forget, when we fall, that list haunts us instead of helps us. It stands over us and said, you didn't do it. Now you're going to pay. You see, the gospel of Jesus is different. The gospel of Jesus says the reason that you feel guilty is because you are guilty, all right? I'm guilty, you're guilty, and your mama's guilty. That's what the gospel of Jesus says, all right? It just tells the truth. But listen, the gospel also says this, that because Jesus has risen from the dead, your failures against others, and your failures against your family, and your failures against God are atoned for 100% on your behalf. It is finished, is what the gospel says. Religion and philosophy doesn't say that. It says do, and the gospel says done. Jesus has not, listen to this, has not only taken your failures, but the guilt you have of all those failures on himself. And guess what? God is smiling at you. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. That is what makes us want to obey Jesus. Yes, we obey. Yes, we follow. But we want to because of his grace. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. 
Because Jesus is alive, listen, there is nowhere else, there is nowhere else but in Jesus that you can find true peace. I'm talking about true peace, real peace, all the way down to your feet, peace. Because Jesus is alive, you can have that true, lasting peace with God and with yourself forever. And I'm talking to the Christians in the room, too. Because Jesus is resurrected, we don't just get a promise of true lasting peace as good as that is it gets better (laughs) he's like how could that get better it gets better we get a glimpse of a glorious future glimpse of a glorious future hold on all right just hang on verse 27 one verse down then he said to thomas put your finger here and see my hands touch it see it five senses right Put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand, place it into my side, and do not disbelieve, but believe. He didn't criticize him for wanting to see this particular specific kind of evidence. He grants it to him. Thomas wasn't going to be satisfied with seeing a vision or seeing a spirit or having a personal experience in his heart. He knew that the resurrection meant the complete restoration from the power of death. And Jesus invites him to stick his fingers into his hands and into his side and to believe. Now, the question is, believe what? Believe what? To believe that Jesus is the first fruits of what is coming at the great resurrection. He's the foretaste of what is coming. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 through 21. This is Paul's great chapter on the resurrection. He says, but in fact, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So Paul refers to the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits of all, the, of all those that have died believing in Jesus. First fruits is a metaphor that's used a lot in the Old Testament to refer to a crop, okay, or a harvest that is coming. The first fruits were the very first fruits or vegetables or grains or whatever you you had in your crop that you picked out of your crop and you would give it to God as an act of worship. So the first fruit was a visible sign of what the future holds, okay? It would say, a crop like this. You take a little bouquet, here, where'd that come from? It comes from all this that's coming. A crop like this, okay? It is also a pledge. It was a pledge of more to come. More like this. So we have one word that sums up both those meanings real well. Crop like this, more like this. We use the word today, prototype, don't we? Sums us up really well. Prototype, first, type, mean of a kind, right? Think about how we make a car. The prototype, guys, is the first model of everything else that you produce that's going to be patterned after that thing in design, in character, or nature, or quality. It is also a pledge of what you made is going to be mass-produced and, and mass-distributed. That is the resurrection of Jesus 
Christ. It is a prototype. It is a pattern of what will happen to us at the resurrection. It's also his pledge of more to come. What happened to Jesus is going to happen to us and all of creation. And what happened to Jesus at his resurrection? Perfect restoration. Let's go to Romans 8, verses 19 through 23. This is an amazing passage in the Bible, guys. For the creation waits, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What's the hope? That, in cre- that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What's the hope of all creation? That it will obtain the glory of the children of God. That it will get what they got. And what do they get? Let's keep reading. For now we know that the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. Our bodies creak. Our bodies get sick. They ache. We groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons. What is that? The redemption of our bodies. Resurrection. That's the redemption of the body. This is amazing, isn't it, guys? I can tell this is hitting you. It's amazing. (laughs) Everything in creation, Paul says, everything in creation is under bondage, it says. It is groaning. It is in pain. To death and decay. Mountains, rivers, weather patterns, animals... People, relationships, everything has been touched by this force. Death corrodes everything it touches like rust. In fact, that's what rust is. It's a little taste of what's coming to every one of us and everything around us through creation. Everything that death touches dies, no matter how young it is, no matter how healthy it is, no matter how strong it is, it dies. Our bodies decay relationships decay, trust in organizations that decays, dreams die and they don't come back, memories die and they don't come back, retirement plans die and they don't come back. Death is the most powerful force in the entire universe. There's not a place you can go where it doesn't exist. And that's why we're scared of it, and that's why we don't like talking about it, and that's why we don't look at, like to look at it and think about it. Death takes anything it wants, any time it wants, anywhere it wants, and it doesn't ask your permission. Right? And there's nothing you can do to slow it down or stop it. Here, listen, right here, this is where the resurrection of Jesus matters the most. The resurrection of Jesus is the visible pledge that God is going to restore everything that death has stolen from us. God is not going to leave us or the world he created to rot under the power of death and decay any more than he left his own son to rot in the grave. 
The resurrection is his pledge. It is his first fruits. This is why Jesus' followers went around telling people their message was good news. The gospel means good news. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City, just wicked smart guy. Uh, He once said this, that every religion or philosophy offers people consolation to death. The gospel alone offers the world restoration from death. Consolation says, there will be a substitute for whatever was stolen from you. It'll be good, be all right, but it's, it's going to be a substitute what was stolen from you. That's kind of like replacing a, a child's dead puppy. You ever try to do that? Well, it looks like fluffy, acts like fluffy. I don't want it. Why? Because it's not fluffy. That's why. It doesn't work. It doesn't take the sting of death away, does it? No, it doesn't. Why? Because the problem is death still won. We were still robbed, and death got away scot-free, and no one held it accountable. That's why it doesn't work that well. It's like people on a game show, right? They lose in the final round. They make this round, they make the next round, they get to the final round. They lose the game in the final round. What do they get? What do they get? Consolation prize. What do they get for losing? Here's this great trip, a million dollars, blah, blah, blah. What do they get? 500 bucks for showing up and being a loser. That's what they get. And that's supposed to make them feel better, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got something, but the sting of losing goes home with them. You guys tracking with me? The resurrection gives us a glimpse of a glorious future family, not a future of consolation, but a future of restoration. The resurrection says whatever is of true value, and you may not know what that true value is, but God does. Whatever is of true value will be restored when death dies. That is how the sting of death is conquered. The resurrection of Jesus says that one day he will fully and completely destroy the great robber of us all, death. Jesus will plunder death's warehouse of stolen goods and stolen loved ones and stolen memories. He'll bring them all back. The King Jesus, King Jesus will return them to us better than new. They will be imperishable. Never to die again. And he'll do this on a worldwide scale. In other words, Jesus will undo everything that death tried to accomplish. He'll reverse it. You know what that means for us? You know, do you realize what that means for us? It means that Jesus has, but because Jesus resurrected, that you and I, listen to me, you lose out on nothing good. That's what it means. You will miss nothing You will miss nothing good. Jesus will restore to you better than you could have imagined it in the first place. Everything you sacrifice to follow Christ, that may mean that you don't get married. You restore the love that you always wanted. He will give that to you. The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ shows that. You will miss nothing good.
The resurrection of Jesus shows us our glorious future, brothers and sisters. As Christians, we have a life-altering good news message to share with the world. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's share that message with the world that right now needs to hear about it. Let's share that message with our family that doesn't want to hear about it and they need to hear about it. And our neighbors and our friends and one another. Can we do that, Crossway? I love you guys. Let me pray for you, okay? Jesus, King Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are alive. In your body, you are alive. And all that that proves and all that that means for us, we thank you, God, that you don't just give us consolation but restoration, even as you were restored from the grave. Thank you that you've given us reason to believe. Thank you that you have given us hope for true peace. And I pray that you would give that to every single person that is listening today. Oh, we love you. We want to worship you. Not just with our mouths and our songs, but with our life. So, so Lord, change us right now. I just pray that, that your spirit would start pressing these truths into our heart. You start causing us to think. You start causing us to want to respond to the good news of Jesus. Oh, we love you, Lord. We love you. You bring dead things to life. Amen.